I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome. This is episode 10 of the Paul Ryder Tapes. I'm Angela Smith, the ex-wife of Paul Ryder, who sadly passed away in July of 2022. In the months leading up to his death, he sat down with me and told his entire life story, the highs and the crashing lows, and he opened up about some very personal things for the very first time. Coming up in this episode... we got a choice, he said to us. Manchester, Amsterdam or Barbados. So Manchester was out, never got anything done. Amsterdam, can you imagine? Uh, still be there, wouldn't we? He'd gone, the guy from London Records had gone and said, if you can't turn up for three million pound, <laughs> I don't want to sign them. When you split up with your band, it is, there's nothing quite like, like, I'd say it's even worse than splitting up with your missus, you know what I mean? It's that, it's that heartbreaking, heart wrench. Said, I can't wait for this afternoon. So why? And he goes, uh, oh, it's that one where we find out whether the bass can make you shit if it goes, like, dead low. <laughs> I was sat in a chair rocking backwards and forwards because of this drug called Stelazine that they gave me, a psychotropic thing, and it just made me rock in the chair. And I remember thinking, OK, this is me for the rest of my life. I'm just going to be sat in a chair rocking backwards and forwards. And your addiction was still underpinning everything at this point, I'm guessing. Yeah, I still, I was still thinking nobody knew, but everybody knew Yeah. at that point. But you were able to manage your life still. Yeah, yeah. And by that time, um, after, the, uh, after the Barbados thing and Sean went in rehab, by the time we was doing the tour, he was back with his habit. So he was like... Uh, he was he wasn't on top form, but the shows were great. We all we yeah. all pulled together for the shows on that tour. Where was your personal life at this point? Because you 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 married had already broken up. Marriage had broken up. I was back at 
back with the parents, back mm. in my old bedroom. Wow, that must have been a bit heavy for you. Oh, yeah, I remember lying there one night thinking, what the hell's just happened? And, of course, you still had your heroin habit at that time, didn't you? Gaz Whelan, the Monday's drummer, had his own suspicions about what really might have triggered Paul's addiction. I think maybe, and this could, this is just my opinion, you could see the demise of his dream ending and the band, and he'd lost control, and also that he could, we all knew it was ending, but obviously he took it a lot worse than all, we all took it quite bad, but he took it, I always thought it was an excuse, I could be wrong, you know, I, I, you know. And it, yeah, it was really, really sort of disappointing because I knew as well, not only was it, my best mate, I was losing, but also that air. Uh, from a selfish point of view, I knew that was definitely the end of the band, do you know what I mean? If Paul wasn't functioning, you know, it wasn't happening. Yeah. And he knew that I knew that he knew that I knew that I knew that he knew, you know. So after you got back from Barbados and you did the tour for Yes Please, mm -hmm. there was then, Factory went, then went under. Factory went under. Phil Sachs had been doing A&R for Factory after he stopped managing the Mondays, so he'd been overseeing the recording of Yes Please for Factory from Manchester. The whole Barbados thing, I always remember that because I was the A&R guy. I used to phone up weekly for a report of what was going on and they'd laid down all the tracks and then um, whatever it was, Simon, the sound man, I chatted to him and they said, well, what about the vocals? He said, oh, we're setting up the table in chairs now for Sean. So I put the phone down. I'm thinking about it all day. Gaz Whelan has vivid memories of those times. One day we'd gone in the, in the studio and outside the studio was a swimming pool on a high, higher level. Bess was already in the hospital because he'd, he'd turned the jeep over and smashed his arm in. And I went, someone said, come have a look at this. And we went outside to the swimming pool and they'd made a crack den out of the sun loungers. Like a proper crack den. <laughs> Just smoke coming out of the sun loungers. And the distance was this jeep turned upside down that Bez had left and the, the rental company couldn't go and get it because it was in the middle of the jungle, you know. But I, I had fond memories of it. I had fond memories of it. But I kind of resigned myself to the fact that it was over. I'm thinking, table and chairs. Why do you need a table and chairs to do vocals? Because Sean's the one don't like that album. We kind of got pushed to go and do that album, even though we'd only half written it, because I don't think New Order had done an album for a while. So they relied on New Order and us for a little bit of funding because they'd signed all these bands. So we were pushed into it. When we actually split up, Factory owed us money. When the factory went bankrupt, they owed us, they owed us money. So, it, no, it was quite the opposite. And it did, the album didn't cost a lot to do. People think it was Barbados, it cost a lot of money. It didn't. It, the studio was cheap. The flights were cheap. Yeah. It was like, it wasn't that... Because we got a choice, they said to us, Manchester, Amsterdam or Barbados. So Manchester was out, never got anything done. Amsterdam, can you imagine? Uh, still been there, wouldn't we? And then I went to Tony and said, you can't fucking stand up, Tony. That's why they've got a table and chairs. And... It was me who pulled the plug on that Barbados recording and brought them back. So it was because you got the call saying that they were setting up tables and chairs? Yes, yeah, and I thought about it all day. Like I worked out that he couldn't stand up. Weird, isn't it? I think Tony thought Yes Please would sell twice as much as Pills and Trills, and it didn't. I remember they had always had a constant rise, you know, new order, new order, and I think they weren't ready for troughs and you know, high hills and troughs sort of thing. Factory went under, owing us, the Mondays, £800,000. For what? 
for that's what they owed us for money off the record. Oh right, we never got that. We never got it on the day the bailiffs went into Factory Records. Nathan was going down to Factory Records to get a cheque for eight hundred thousand pounds, which is what they owed us in royalties. And, and um, that's what they hold the Mondays. And, uh, but the bailiffs got there before him. I didn't know this. Yeah. Well, there was a table, wasn't there? An infamous table that Tony had bought. Yeah. How yeah. much was that? 11 grand. <laughs> oh, it's not too bad, I suppose. <laughs> Hanging up from the ceiling with, um, I think it was wire from a sailing boat, some kind of yeah. strong wire. Oh, so it didn't have legs? No legs, it was just hanging from the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a bit more about Tony. Tony was great, and I was always intimidated by him as well, actually, because I knew he went to the uh, Clever School yeah. in Salford, and he could speak Latin. Yeah. And it was like, wow, he must be really intelligent if he can speak Latin. <laughs> so I was always a bit intimidated by him, but he was always so down to earth. Always so down to earth and really just... I can't thank him enough for letting us express our art. Yeah. You know, he'd let us do anything. Yeah. Anything we wanted to do. It was like, yeah, go ahead. This is great. It's our art. He was a visionary, wasn't he? he yeah. He was a visionary. Mark Day, the Monday's guitarist, really enjoyed listening to Tony holding court. I was just starstruck. Just like you'd been, you'd been you know, boardwalk and uh, seeing him on Sally. And what really impressed me, turns up and rolls a spliff. <laughs> We'd all run out of our drugs and he turns up and starts skinning up. Brilliant. Yeah, go on, Tony. And then, because he, he, he talks in a different sort of, um, his different background, he's educated, went to Cambridge Uni, whatever. And this is Tony Wilson speaking in 2005 before his untimely death. Tragedy and glamour are attractive to all of us, so it doesn't really help us understand the attraction of the iconic diva to the all my gay men friends. I think if you try to take Proust's theory that... And he was talking also, and you'd just be like, whoa. Fame of that sort, which is, to quote that phrase, larger than life again, fame of that sort is a roller coaster, which whizzes you through real life. You just sit there and listen to what was coming in, it was great. And you don't. You don't live a real life. You live in this imagined bubble and it starves you of some of the sort of central ordinary nutrients of day-to-day -day life. Oh, he's a lovely man, brilliant character. Um, you, you just sit and listen to him. Um, and he loved us. If it wasn't for Tony, we wouldn't be anyway. He believed in us, which was, you know, nice. Yeah, fond memories of Tony. Dave Haslam, who was one of the first journalists to really champion the Mondays, was a key figure in their ascension. When Ecstasy came around, came along, it was like the final piece in the jigsaw. Paul and Sean's mum, Linda, was the grateful recipient of many gifts from Tony, as she tells her best friend Sandra, Gaz Whelan's mum. Tony Wilson sent me champagne... And my dad was a beer drinker. My dad had never had champagne. And by that time, my dad was dying. Yeah. And uh, he said, I said, go on, Dad, you've got to celebrate the lads. And he said, oh, I quite like that. Can yeah. I have another? And I also think that is the moment when Tony Wilson really understood them. 
He was always in the club, wasn't he? Yeah. You know, he oh, was a major... Yeah, but my dad worked on the news. My dad worked on the newspapers. They did. They had a break every hour. Yes, yes. And they were at work. They were in the Vincent. Is it the Vincent in town? And, and that other kind the land of cakes. I know where you All the old pubs yeah. up near and the Delhi Express. There, they all went they? in the yeah. Green Door. Yeah, they yeah. 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 Oh, they were all. They were all heavy drinkers. Yes, they were. Derek had never really been a drinker. Tony was always talking about. Uh, creating a revolution. He, want, he wanted to create something like punk. His big hero was Malcolm McLaren. He wanted he knew that music could be the vehicle to kind of knock the world off its axis. And I think he 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 kind and the Mondays were that for him. And so the drug was part of because Wilson was a grown up in the six, end of the 60s when he was a student, he knew how important that new drug was to crystallising the new moment. We bought a bottle of Cinsano and lemonade for when his mother and dad came and they weren't drinkers, but they had a Cinsano and, and lemonade, lemonade on, box, yeah. on Boxing Day. Yeah. My mother used to say to me, my mother used to say to me, oh girl, oh girl, I do wish you'd shake yourself. Get yourself some big heels and get some jewellery on it and have a, good drink. have a good drink. He helped create the Manchester that is Manchester City Centre right now. Him and yeah. Tom Bloxham, who was a yeah. property developer. Yeah. You know, Tony had been over in New York and seen all these loft apartments in old buildings. Right. And he was like, we should do this to Manchester. Have city centre living. Because yeah. back in them days, Manchester was yeah. desolate after six o'clock. Yeah. Scary place to be. Yeah. And he had this vision of turning all these old Victorian factories into apartments. And that's what it is now. Yeah. I remember sharing an office building with him, Chris Joyce, who yeah. was the drummer from Simply Red. Simply Red. He yeah. owned a building. Yeah. And Factory Two, I think it was. That's right, yeah. Was on the second floor of the building mm -hmm. and we were on the ground floor to turn on TV mm -hmm. and I was star whenever I bumped into him in the stairwell I was always really starstruck mm. weird isn't it he never called my mum Linda it was always Mrs Ryder really yeah and she'd always say call me Linda and he'd say no no it's respect respect darling yeah. respect Mrs Ryder yeah. Yeah. I used to go crimson if anybody spoke to me did you really very shy and quiet. Oh. I wasn't as a child. No. I never shut up. My well, mother's I brothers used to that. say, well, paint mustard on your tongue if you don't shut up. After Factory had gone under, they mm. then tried to broker a deal for you with London Records, is that right? Yeah, London Records bought the back catalogue from Factory at uh, a knockdown price, but they never got new order. Because right. New Order was never officially signed with Factory. Were you officially signed? With yeah, we signed a deal. Okay. We signed a deal. I remember seeing that contract and Nathan had put some funny things in, like... Oh, yeah, a year's subscription to Viz yeah, and things like that. Yeah, and you had to have polo mints or something. Or yeah. Some kind of... You can always yeah. put silly things in contracts. Yeah. 
Um, so there was a big meeting, very infamous meeting that's been taught. It's the stuff of urban legend. Mm -hmm. Tell us the real story of that infamous meeting. The real story is we'd written five new songs and uh, the head of London Records came up to Manchester to our rehearsal room in Ancoats and we were supposed to play in these five songs live with Sean singing live. Great songs, still got a cassette of them, never got released. And, still got uh, that cassette? Yeah. Ooh. Mm. I'll have to dig it out, it's in my mum's in the loft. Mark Day, the Monday's guitarist, remembers that day only too well. It was a lifeline and we were re rehearsing in Ancoats and um, Sean hadn't turned up. Then eventually Sean did turn up, had a word, um, whatever they said, I don't know, but the next thing he said, I'm off for a Kentucky, and that was the end of it. So he came up from London with his offer of £3 million for five albums, and uh, we're all sat there waiting for Sean, and, it's, and said, he's just going for something to eat, getting a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and it just happened to be one of those days when every heroin dealer in Manchester had the phone switched off and he couldn't perform without it. So it took him like six hours to eventually score. And by the time he got back to the rehearsal room, he'd gone, the guy from London Records had gone and said, if you can't turn up for three million pound, <laughs> I don't want to sign him. So he completely blew it for a Sean's self-destruct button that I was talking about earlier. And the next thing, it was like me and Paul said, right, so no, grabbed our equipment because we know we're not going to see that again. <laughs> How did you feel that day? Absolutely fucking gutted. Absolutely gutted. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Gaz Whelan, the Monday's drummer, had his own way of coping with the disappointment. I was drinking more, smoking weed. I had my moments. You know, Mark was, so, you know, we can't blame just heroin. Everyone had gone off on their own thing, but people weren't getting on. I think, yeah, the fame thing, the, the press were turning us against each other a lot. There was things where they were saying, like, they'd say, are, are you resentful because you're, you're not on the cover of the, the magazine? So we were like, well, we know we're fine. They'd say to Sean, oh, the rest of the band, PD, they did it a lot with, really. PD wanted to be on the cover and he didn't, you know, well, maybe he did, I don't know, he didn't, but they kind of painted us as though we were, we were bitter and like, uh, and I think Sean saw that as us having an ego. And none of it was true, you know, from both sides. And we were a bit naive to us, to, us, us and Sean, I think both of us are a bit naive. 
And you get people in your ear, you know, all people around us. Everyone was off doing their own thing a lot of the time. And we weren't spending time together as much like we used to. We were, we were a gang. We were, you know, a four or five-headed monster. And that, and, and that kind of changed. I think there's that kind of northern working class insecurity of thinking, you know, imposter syndrome. We're not good enough for this. So it's going so to end any moment. So let's not put too much heart and soul into it because it's all going to collapse at some point. So I think we all kind of accepted it. I mean, at the end, when we, when we split up, Sean said we should have just taken a break for six months or a year out, and that's probably what we should have done. But the, 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 but the problems were more deep-rooted, I think. That's when Gaz, Mark and PD fanned out on me and Sean. They said they called a meeting with Nathan in Nathan's office and said, we don't want to carry on anymore. You've just blown it. You just blew it. Did you know about that meeting at the time? Yeah, yeah, me and Sean turned up to the meeting and they'd said, we, oh. don't, we, we don't want to do it anymore. Bez, the Monday's dancer and vibes meister, was devastated. He knew that it was over. And, uh, yeah, it was a really sad time. Like I say, where when you split up with your band, it is, there's nothing quite like, like... I'd say it's even worse than splitting up with your missus, you know what I mean? It's that... It's that heartbreaking, heart-wrenching, you know what I mean? It's like no feeling. I can't describe it, no. The nearest could describe it's like splitting up with your missus after 10 years and you find her cheating. It's that sort of feeling, you know what I mean? And that's how awful it actually feels, you know, when, 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 when you come to that moment. The rock and roll mums, Linda and Sandra, were fuming. I was very angry, yeah. With you. I'm very, very angry. Very angry. I thought, what an idiot. Yes. You know, what an yeah. idiot yeah. throwing all this yeah. away. Yeah. You see, I, I was upset because of Derek. I thought Derek had sold his soul for that band. That's what hurt me. That really hurt me. So I don't know how you must have felt, obviously. Well, you've got five minutes to kick off. Oh! You know, I should have kicked off in a minute. And that was because of the heroin addiction of the two of you? Yeah, and mainly that he'd just blown a £3 million deal. Right. So, uh, you know, to give credit to our kid, he said to them, let's not split up, let's just have 12 months off, go and do your own thing, and, and they wouldn't have it. And like a week later, Sean said to me, when are you going to phone them all and get them back together? Because that was my job, Monday had. Mm. You know, when he'd upset people before, it was my job to get on the phone and say, come on, it's fine, everything's going to be good again. And I said, I can't do it. I'm exhausted. And that's when the nervous breakdown happened. Talk me through that. Oh, wow. <laughs> what did that feel like? I ended up in a place called Meadowbrook, which is part of Salford Royal. It's not Salford Royal, Hope Hospital in Salford, the psychiatric unit. What was the first sign of a nervous breakdown? What is oh, that? just depression. Like, the world is ending. Like, the day after, or did it take a while to come on? Probably a week, two weeks. Yeah. And knowing that the, that's all I'd done since I was 17 was the band. Yeah. It was the only thing I'd done, and it wasn't there anymore. Uh -huh. It was like a death. Yeah. So, yeah, depression crept in. What did that feel like? At the time, I just didn't want to speak to anyone. I just locked myself in the bedroom. 
And it was just like, I just couldn't handle it anymore. I just burst into tears one day and couldn't stop crying. And then my mum took me to the hospital, to the uh, emergency room, and they, they put me in a um, psychiatric ward. Well, I remember, I think I'd been there like two weeks, and all I could do, I was sat in a chair rocking backwards and forwards because of this drug called Stelazine that they gave me, a psychotropic thing, and it just made me rock in the chair. And I remember thinking, okay, this is me for the rest of my life. I'm just going to be sat in a chair rocking backwards and forwards. But Paul wasn't the only one suffering with his mental health. Gaz Whelan, the Monday's drummer, was also struggling. I had a breakdown and it ended up in Meadowbrook, where Paul was. <laughs> when there at the same time, no, that would have been brilliant, though, wouldn't it, if we were? I was there before and he was there a couple of times afterwards. But it would have been funny if we were there at the same time, wouldn't it? That would have been brilliant. We had a good laugh in the in the in the nut house. We had a good, you know, we went to go and see him. We had a good laugh. Some of the stories were telling about people, but me, me, me and Paul struggled to uh, function just on a on a on a on a normal basis for life. You know, he dealt with it with heroin. I dealt with it with alcohol. Or both had anxiety. Both we both struggled to function. You say we're very different, but very similar. I can't do anything. I can't really can't do anything. As time went on, I was there another four weeks and, and the antidepressants started to work. And it was, uh, everything's on Ghidori again. Not within six weeks though, surely. More or less, yeah. Right. And what about the heroin at this point? Had you I was off it, it yeah. Mm -hmm. was, do you think that contributed to the depression? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm. I think one of the, one of the issues with coming off heroin is, from what I learned from you, is that it's not just about giving up the heroin, it's about trying to work out why you did it in the first place and mm -hmm. fixing that. Yeah. Like, fixing a drug addict isn't as simple as just taking the drug away. Mm -hmm. It's about looking at what made you do that in the first place. That's why I believe therapy is so important. Yeah. After you come off, um, after you've done a safe detox... Yeah. That's why that's why I think it worked the last time I went in rehab is because I had therapy afterwards. Yeah, for a long time. And for seven years. Yeah. I had therapy. What were the main things that came up in the therapy? Like what what were the, what did you learn about yourself? Um that I could that little tiny things could could be exaggerated in my mind. I can't think of one specific one right now, but things that are trivial would would be magnified to the point of being crippled with fear. Yeah. And you just learn how to deal with them. And that is when, I think that's when I met Donovan's daughter, Estrella, and we had a five-year relationship. So you had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. And then you, after the nervous breakdown, Breakdown when you were feeling a bit better, you met, met Estrella. Met Estrella. Tell me about the day that you met Estrella, what that was like. Oh, I uh, somehow managed to get on the guest list for the Donovan show. Yeah. But the week before, I'd seen an interview in a Sunday magazine with a Sunday paper with Donovan and, and Estrella. I thought, oh, she's pretty nice. I'll, uh, and he's playing next week, I'll go and meet her. Right. And the next day, I uh, took her home to 
Hazelhurst Road in, in Worsley to my parents' house. What, the day after the show? Yeah. What, so you stayed with her that night? Stayed with her that night, yeah. yeah. In uh, the Midland Hotel. Yeah. And then went back to my mum's house and she said, oh, you said you was going to meet her. I didn't think you was going to bring her home. Who uh, said that? Linda. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Was, um, and that was the next five years of my life with Estrella. And what was that relationship like? Oh, it was great at first. And Sean was in a relationship with her sister? Yeah. Um, Oriel was still living in uh, in the desert, in Palm Desert. Right. And she came over she came over to England and we introduced Sean to Oriel and they had a they had a relationship as well. Oh, so you met met Estrella before he met Oriel? Then? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And how did that work, two brothers going out with two sisters? It was kind of Groovy. The two sisters got on well, did they? Oh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So... I mean, Sean was getting on well at that point. It's just that we both had heroin habits. Do you remember the first step, the first time you thought, oh, I'm just going to have a bit of heroin? Oh, yeah, it's always like, I'll just have it this once. But what triggered you, though, to do that? Um, you know, it doesn't have to be bad things that trigger you. Oh. It's good things as well. My life was on the up again. Right. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll celebrate with a bit. Everything's going great. Wow, so I'll just yeah. destroy it. Yeah, it's a self-destruct button again. Did the sisters know that you both had heroin habits? Yeah. And how did they feel about that? Oh, they thought it was awful. I was trying to get me to stop. I was helping me to stop, helping me detox. Um, and eventually that's what ruined the, the relationship with both of us. Really? Yeah. As Paul was trying hard to resist sliding into full-blown addiction again, Gaz persuaded him to enrol with him on a music production course, where one day they met up with another friend of his, Dave Brattell, who Paul always called Disco Dave. He talks here with his wife, Maureen. I went to meet them to have some dinner, and, uh, and Paul said, oh, I can't wait for this afternoon. So why? And he goes, uh, oh, it's that one where we find out whether the bass can make you shit if it goes, like, dead low, <laughs> the sound of it. And this was, like, you know, his whole thing about uh, the course was trying to see if he can make his bass make people shit. <laughs> but they were, like, buzzing, saying, yeah, it's, it's true. You, it goes dead low, this bass, and it's so low, it gets in your belly, and you just shit everywhere. Oh, dear me. I don't know whether that is true. They should sell it as a cure for constipation. <laughs> You can imagine it at a Monday's gig, you know, <laughs> for a laugh. You know, 5,000 people shitting everywhere. <laughs> Paul used to call me Disco Dave. The reason why I call me Disco Dave, uh, we're, we're, <laughs> we're in Glasgow and, um, uh, and this uh, couple came across and said, uh, um, uh, oh, excuse me, can we have your autograph? And, uh, and, and Paul just smiled and I, and I said, yeah, yeah, of course you can. And so um, he, he said, OK. And he gave this um, uh, piece of paper, but he gave it to me. And, uh, and I said, what, what are you... I said, do you mean it's Paul signed for you? And he went, no, no, it's for you. And I went, me? I said, uh, who do you think I am? And this like goes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, who the hell do you think I am? <laughs> and um, and uh, so, so they said, we've, we've come all the way from Aberdeen to see you. I thought, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and... Um, uh, 
<laughs> he said, yeah, yeah, we've, we've, bu- we've booked in. We booked in last night and uh, 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 you're on tomorrow. Um, so, we, we, you know, we've got tickets and everything. He said, here's a flyer. And they, they'd, been, they'd come to some club night and the lead DJ was called Disco Dave. I don't <laughs> It's and because they'd said to you originally, you're Dave, aren't you? And you said, yeah, because you are. <laughs> so, so I signed it. This didn't want Paul's autograph. But my, so I signed, I signed it Disco Dave, and that's, that's where it came from. My mates and Paul's mates, like, have just been friends forever. And in fact, our kid used to work on the post with Paul. So we've always kind of sort of, like, yeah. crossed each other. And then um, in the 90s... Um, uh, we got to know each other pretty well and pretty much hung around for, you know, like a um, um, couple of decades then and did various things. And uh, he, he, Linda and Derek lived not too far from where we were living. Um, so uh, we used to go around there and yeah, take him for a drink on a Sunday. It sounds always, no matter what the aftershave, it was always a really nice, clean, fresh smell. I think I remember that. We'd been together for seven years before we got married. And uh, for one reason or another, neither one of us actually ever wanted a wedding. Wanted to be married, but never actually wanted a wedding. So we decided to effectively elope and not tell anyone that we were getting married. But what we wanted to do is find a way of actually memorialising it. So we asked Paul to, we needed two people to be witnesses, um, which was our friend Andy and his then partner Karen. Um, And then we asked Paul if he would do a video of the whole day so that if people wanted to have a look at it they could um, and uh, I know that Linda later told me how excited Paul was to actually be do having this job and took it very seriously the job of a camera operator um, unfortunately he managed to somehow record the very worst of us didn't he it really wasn't a good tape a good tape that came out and there was far too much swearing and, and poor behaviour going on, so we couldn't actually ever show it to any of our relatives at all. There, there, there wasn't five minutes we could salvage from it. Salvage, even the actual, even the actual ceremony itself was just punctuated by heckling. Give it from a fucking him, kiss by him and Andy all the way through. He filmed the whole day. He was there the whole day, and we had gone for a meal in Barca afterwards, and everything was put. There was just nothing that could be used because there was just this monologue going on in the background of every F word and C word and everything, just awful. He was talking over it, and he was heckling as well. There was just, oh, it was just awful. <laughs> and then uh, the, the wedding night was also spoilt by Paul constantly ringing up, asking us if we were doing it yet. (laughs) And just laughing his head off and putting the phone down. (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So you did some music with Estrella. Yeah, we did like six or seven songs, mm-hmm. which was really good. Yeah. Really good. She's got a great voice. Yeah. Um, but it never got released. Yeah, we can and we'll play it. some. 
We should try and dig out some of that music too. Yeah, we'll play a track of that. Yeah, hopefully she won't mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell me about the end of the relationship with Estrella. Um, oh, it was quite messy, quite messy. It ended up with me going into my first rehab. Um, I was so messed up again. Gaz Whelan, the Monday's drummer, explains that music wasn't the only thing he had in common with Paul. Me and Paul had suffered from anxiety and depression. That's a few other things we had in common. We both had depression and anxiety. Do you think that was caused by your experience being in the band, the highs and the lows? No, I think you got. that's why you end up being a musician. Well, it depends. Maybe everyone's different. Mine was caused by the accident I had when I was 11. I never kind of recovered from that. Everything goes back, back to that. I snapped my arm in half. Uh, and my bone and my elbow came through. Me... But the problem was, it was just before I started high school, so I missed six months of high school. I was in Salford Royal for a few months. But the problem was, I didn't know whether it would work again. So that the, the, they saved me out. They, before I went under, they said we might have to amputate. So I remember that going under. And then the doctors came in the after and said, you're going to be in for a long time, but we managed to save the arm. But you might not be able to use it. It's a lot of nerve damage. And I was like, oh, I'll just have an arm, won't be able to use it. I'd been having guitar lessons for three years, so I thought, oh, I won't be able to play guitar anymore. And then it came to me and said, you will get the nerves back bit by bit. It took six years for the nerves to come back in my fingers. But they said, but this is, the head, this is what messed my head up. They said, but your arm might never grow. So I might have this 11-year-old's arm for all my life. So, I know, so every day, you're laughing. So every day I'd be like this, checking my arm's growth. So, so, that's, so that started my OCD, my anxiety. So literally every day I'd be checking my arm. The lifestyle doesn't help. You know, when you've got depression, mental illness, you need, you need stability, you need uh, routine. You don't need a lot of drugs and alcohol. You know, and I remember that's, I've not seen a psychiatrist for years, but it must be about 15 years ago, and they, they, they said to me, said, really, what you need is something, somewhere, a job where you don't travel a lot, you have a routine, it's not noisy, and you're not around a lot of people. And I said, well, that, that doesn't help. He said, what's your job? I said, I'm a rock drummer in a band, and he just started, actually started laughing. And he went, I can't help you. <laughs> so I think, you know, so, so I think there's, a, you know, there's, there's kind of that. So it, I think it doesn't help. I think it just makes it worse. I stopped going to meetings. Which, which was another downfall. So at what point did you break up with Estrella? Oh, while I was in rehab. Oh, why? What happened? She'd just had enough. Yeah. Just, she'd just had enough, couldn't take any more of my using and drinking. Right, and how did that make you feel? Awful. Rejection again. Yeah. Can't handle rejection. Yeah. I mean, I can now, because I had, like I say, I had seven years therapy. Yeah. You know, I've worked on rejection, but yeah, with that, at the time it was like, oh, this is awful. But you still managed to stay clean when you came out for a short period. For a time. short period, yeah. Then I thought I was well and I didn't need meetings, and uh, and that was the downfall. Okay. So then, what was the result of you picking up the drugs again? Um, just having to go on school every day, so I wouldn't be ill. You know, I needed it to to feel better, to function throughout the day. So you're back at your parents' house, you were back on drugs, your relationship with Estrella had 
That was over. It ended, and so then what happened? And then they had uh, Jacob and Amelia right. living with me at my parents' house. Right, and then you got another breakdown. Then another breakdown. And what was that like compared to the first one? Pretty much, pretty much the same. Just, what happened? Uh, uh, just hopelessness. Yeah. Everything was hopeless. I was, I couldn't see. I couldn't see anything in the future. Didn't you grow a big beard as well? Oh, yeah. My uh, Paul McCartney Let It Be era beard. Yeah. Oh, my mate Andy Hardy said I looked like James Anderson, <laughs> who, was a, who was a police constable of Manchester, also known as God's Cop. Yeah. Yeah, he said I looked like James Anderson. I, I preferred the uh, Paul McCartney reference myself. <laughs> So how did that manifest itself then? What did it look like to everybody on the outside? I don't know. You'd have to interview them. So I asked Paul's childhood friend, Andy Hardy. Birds nesting in his beard, he had food all round yeah. it. Paul was back at home. You know, he was struggling with alcohol and he was coming off heroin, trying to come off heroin. And uh, he was in a right state at that time. He was in a right state. Um Initially, he was drinking still. So me and Dave and Paul would go to pubs various in the area. We'd go around and pick him up and take him out because basically he was sat in his house all the time, um, not really doing anything, not functioning well. I think his mental health was suffering at that time as well. He wasn't in a good place, Paul. You know what I mean? He, was, he really was struggling. You know, we could see that. Again, it's... He was still drinking at that time, even though he wasn't drinking particularly excessively. He was using alcohol every day. He'd start the day with his, you know, a couple of cans of Stella. He would be allocated four cans of Stella, which he would have, that would be it. That would be his, his beer intake for the day. He struggled for a long time, Paul. He wasn't in a good shape. You know, he'd have, invariably have the same clothes on every day. He'd have a pair of tracky bottoms on, stained. He'd have a T-shirt stained. He'd have food in his beard, you know, weren't washing particularly well. He wasn't looking after himself. He was, he was, in, a, he was, in, a, he was in a state then, at that time. Were you rocking in the chair again? I was rocking in the chair again. I remember, remember the show Top of the Pops 2. Yeah. Where they, they, they have uh, revisit old Top mm. of the Pops performances. I remember with the big beard back in the living room at the parents' house and Top of the Pops 2 was on and one of the Mondays songs came on and I was, I was looking at it thinking, what happened? That used to be me. Mm. You know? Wow. How was Sean with you in these times? Oh, his answer was to give me a big chunk of Lebanese hash, shove it down my throat and said, that'll help you. Did it? Oh, it sent me off my head for like two days. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was his answer. Was he concerned about you, though? I don't think he was concerned. I think he might have been... That was his... That, that's how he, he chose to help, you know? Yeah. Not knowing much about drug addiction. That's his love language, I guess. Yeah. I suppose he thought he was helping you. Yeah. But did he have much contact with you when you were in such a bad way? Not really. I'd see him if he'd pop, he'd pop in every now and then to see my mum and I'd see him, but I, I, I was just more concerned about growing a big beard. And you didn't speak to anyone at all? Not really, no. Didn't Kids? 
Oh, the kids was there all the time, Did you yeah. speak to them, though? Yeah, I spoke to the kids. Yeah. But not, you know, I was pretty vacant. Yeah. Oh, that's no, a good album. Yeah. Good name for an album, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what got you out of that second nervous breakdown? Um... Hmm. Remember, Gaz used to come and see me once a day. He helped. You didn't go back into Meadowbrook then? No, I was in Trafford General for like three days hmm. in their psychiatric ward. Yeah. And then I just packed my bags and left and went back to my parents' house hmm. and just took the medication that was prescribed. You know, and after, after a few weeks, I started to feel better. Right. But Gaz came to see me every day. Yeah. Yeah. Good friend. Yeah, good friend. So Paul was beginning to feel better and started the music production course with Gaz and on the first day he saw a familiar face. I'm uh, him, the percussionist from MV, uh, Manchester Vibes in the area and uh, I decided to take on a music production course. And while I was on this music production course, on the dinner break, somebody over the table says to me, are you Himmett from Envita? So I, I lifted my head up and looked, and it was horse. Asking, I said, yeah, it's me. So, and I said, is that you, Paul? And he said, it's me, Paul, and Gaz. I couldn't believe that they were there as well. And I thought to myself, what's going on here? So on the dinner break, we went for a pint, we, we had a, a roll-up, and uh, that was it. We hit it off like three naughty kids together. So I'm reading the paper, the local paper, on a dinner break, and uh, it said, Salford Ram Raiders, and all the warehouses are getting done in. So I says to the horse, I says, horse, I says, we're going to write a track about Ram Raiders in Salford, all your boys, all your crew. <laughs> and he... He says to me, yeah, let's do it. So I written, the, I penned some lyrics down, a few ideas, a skeleton of a structure. And then I said to him, I've got a, a producer friend of mine called Lee Duval. And uh, I'd like you to come outside of college to Lee's house, to his studio, where we can continue working and writing. So he says, yeah, let's do it. And the producer, Lee DeVal, remembers that day well. When um, Emmett brought Paul to my house, and I'll always call him Paul, I never call him Horse. And the simple reason is, my mum was here, and he walks in. Now, I've been doing dance music, I didn't know who the Happy Mondays were. You know, it sounds mental, but I used to listen to heavy metal, then got into dance music. So I didn't know who the Mondays were, and Emmett was like, I'm bringing Horse down from the Mondays. And I'm thinking, who's that? Do you know what I mean? Oh, he's a bass player. All right, okay, bring him down. So he turns up, and then it goes, and my mum's there. And then it goes, uh, this is us. And my mum's from Salford, even though we're in Lynn. And she goes, I'm not bloody calling you horse. What's your bloody proper name? And he goes, Paul. And he goes, I'll call you bloody Paul. And Lee, you're calling him Paul too. <laughs> so I always call him Paul. He calls him horse. I call him Paul. And when you write music together, you get a bond. No yeah. matter how, you know, you could yeah, be yeah, doing yeah, the yeah. trap for half a day or something. Yeah. But if you've created something together and you liked it, you have a bond for life. Mm. And that's what I had with Paul. Later on, I got ill, like with cancer and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, 
Paul was like a um, a real shining light in a, a, a dark time for me. You know, like he gave me the opportunity to uh, remix flashbacks, which were remixed for him. And him and Bez used to play it out when they were doing DJ gigs together. And because I was ill at the time, it just gave me a sense of purpose. You know, because w- when you're ill, and especially when you've got cancer, you find that all your true friends will stick by you and contact you and stuff like that. And I, I know who my true friends are. And all the others will just run because they don't know, mainly they don't know how to handle it and stuff like that. But he was there. He invited me to his gigs, put me on the guest list for the Mondays. I mean, for me, um, any, um, <laughs> get upset now. Paul was a good friend. So then, Everything changed overnight, really, didn't it, in 1999? And Paul's friend Dave Brattell was with him on that fateful night. Paul got a phone call from uh, uh, Huey from the uh, Fun Loving Criminals who said that he was playing a gig in Par Hall in Warrington and would Paul go along to see him? So, uh, so Paul said, do you want to come and see the Fun Loving Criminals? So I said, yeah, OK. And when we were there, um, this bloke came up to Paul. I didn't know him from Adam. And said, uh, oh, "Hi, Paul. I've been wanting to have a word with you." I must have been feeling better, and I was going out, and I bumped into Simon Moran, who's uh, from SJM Concerts, probably the biggest concert promoter in Europe. And um, he said, "How do you feel about getting the band back together and doing a tour?" But that was how the approach happened. So, what did you say when he said that, and what did you think? Where did your mind go with that? My mind went, "Well." went straight to, will anyone turn up and watch us? Paul's friends Dave and Maureen Brattell were devastated when they heard the news that Paul had passed away. Uh, Andrew, Andrew Randers. Was Andrew Randers? Yeah. On the afternoon. Yeah. Yeah, and then it started being on the news and that kind of thing. Mm. It didn't seem real. Because it was like... Because you'd, you'd always thought... You know, Paul's not the healthiest of blokes. You know, what I mean, he, you know, you know, he don't go to the gym. You know, he, uh, he, uh, he you know, <laughs> he, he smokes. You know, he's, he's the you know world champion smoker, and uh, uh, and and you know the amount of uh, uh, drugs he's consumed and alcohol he's drunk. You know, he he, he was never going to be uh, you know get a telegram from the Queen or anything. But but he still was you know painfully young. You know, you still even though you you think people are not that healthy. Uh, or you assume they're not, you know, you don't equate that with the, you know, with thinking they're going to die soon. Paul was always just part of our, our lives in and out. And sometimes you saw him, sometimes you didn't. And you'd get a message every so often. And, um, you know, just the odd, and, and, but it was always, I always smiled when I saw him. Do you know what I mean? Whenever I saw Paul, it was, oh, it's Paul. And it was always a nice to see him and nice to catch up, you know, and, uh, it's just a shame that we're not going to be able to do that anymore. I don't know whether I have some kind of issue with light bulbs, but I, I, I invariably have been buying light bulbs when I, when I, when I saw him and went and uh, he said, you've been doing light, light bulbs again. And he just happened, I just happened to be buying light bulbs. And, um, and then for years afterwards, you send me texts, you're all right for light bulbs, just out of the blue. <laughs> the other one you always used to do is you get to send a text, do you want an egg with that? Yeah. Oh, so- 
because I told him the story of how when I first met my our mother-in-law and first went over to dinner, she made me the most random meal I've ever had in my life, which was cheese and tomato pizza, boiled potatoes and Brussels sprouts. And she just went, do you want an egg with that? <laughs> and we told him that. And for the next 25 years, every so often, there'd just be a text going, do you want an egg with that? <laughs> it really tickled him. <laughs> Coming up on the show next week. Taking a lead from Sean on the music never, ever, ever happened. And it never will. I pulled Sean to the side and I was like, listen, we've got a problem here. Unless this wallet and money is put back within the next hour, we're walking and I'm never going to work with you guys again. You don't fucking do that. We went to Dublin. You were doing a gig in Dublin and I was with you. Right. And you told me that your friends Andy and Dave, Disco Dave and yeah. Andy Hardy, wanted to talk to me. Oh. And I said, what do they want to talk to me about? And you said, they're going to tell you that I've started using again. Oh, my God. Did it really was... happen? The music you can hear is the fab Ram Raiders track that Paul wrote with Phil Jones, Lee Val, and Himmit Singh, who you heard from earlier. Special thanks today go out to Jeff Tidy, Steve Ness, Michael Smith, Simon Gilroy and Mark Duffy for joining our special club and becoming patrons of the show. It's really exciting to see it grow. So please join us at the special rate for founding members. We've got some really great perks planned. So go to patreon.com forward slash the Paul Ryder tapes to join. Visit our website for links to our socials, which is paulrider.tv, and go and have a look at our shop that's got some fab merch. We're going to be back next week, same time, same place. Thank you so much for being here. Please give us a nice review and rating. Tell all your friends about the podcast. Thanks to all of our fab guests. But of course, as usual, the biggest thanks has got to go to the man himself, the one and only and very sadly missed, Paul Anthony Ryder. Don't make me the excuse, Sam. <laughs>